The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Uh, whether you've been a part of Ecclesia for many years or this is your first time with us this morning, we want you to know we are glad that you're here that you've chosen to take some time to come and to celebrate God's love and abundance and to do that in with our community. My name is Rochelle Palmer and we may or may not have met, um, but if you've been around this community for the last several years, either online or in person, you probably know who my husband is, Pastor Sean. Um, And you may have also heard a story or two about me or about our family. And you better believe I'm taking this opportunity to tell you that only most of what Sean says is true. Um, Sean is out of town on a dad-daughter trip with our oldest daughter this weekend who leaves for college next, next week. And so they're having a, a kind of a last fling. And he sent me a text last night and it said uh, that just because I was preaching today didn't mean that that was my chance to make fun of him or to tell stories about him. And I was like, why are you tempting me? Because I hadn't even thought about that, but after that text, it's all I could think of. But I decided to go easy and to share something that is, I think, objectively true, not a story that has a perspective or an alternative view, but to say that we really are grateful to be a part of the Ecclesia community, and we hope that you are too, and we hope that if you are new here, that you will find here a place where you can find connection, where you can find a place to grow, and your understanding of what it means to live a life according to scripture and following the teachings of Jesus. Before we turn to our series this morning, I always have a couple things I like to share. The first one is, I want you to know that I really believe that you have never been loved more than you are loved right now, and that you will never be loved any less. And I also believe that life with Jesus is far better than life without him. Let's pray before we open the text. Holy God, we come before you grateful for your presence with us, grateful that we can come together to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of community and of fellowship, of song and of prayer. Lord, we ask that in our time together that you free us from distractions of the world that you would open our hearts and open our ears, that we may hear what you have prepared for us. And Lord, that it be your truth that is spoken and heard. And Lord, that it lead us to be a more loving, merciful, kind people in the world. We ask these things through your son, Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing this morning in this series on the voices of women in Christian history. And when I was asked to speak today and to select a woman uh, to share with you, I kind of felt deflated initially because I didn't instantly have this list of women that I really wanted to talk about. Certainly, my mother has been significant in my faith development. I've had some really great Bible class teachers who have been women. I've had some mentors who have entered my life in different seasons to help me understand a little bit more of what it means to live a Christian life but I didn't have this kind of reserve of Christian women in history who necessarily had made a big impression on me. I could think of men, but not women. 
So I started searching my childhood and my adolescent years, kind of the years where I was really in faith formation. And I thought about the tradition in which I was raised, which I know Sean has shared this before, that we're both products of the Churches of Christ. And you may not know much about Churches of Christ, but Churches of Christ are a singing people. The churches in which I was raised celebrated a cappella music. Often when people know of Churches of Christ, that's the thing they know. They say, oh, you're the church that doesn't have music. And we say, no, we have great music. We just don't have instruments. The only music that's made in the Church of Christ on a Sunday morning is the voices of the congregation. But when you're raised in a Church of Christ, you grow up knowing the part that you sing because we sing everything in four-part harmony. So you know your part and you know the role it plays in every hymn. And this actually has a really great value. Churches of Christ, through a cappella music, learn how to listen to one another. Many of the songs that we sing are sung in rounds, or men and women are singing different lines at different times, or there's an echo. And so we learn to listen to each other so we know when to join in the song and when to fade out. Growing up with a cappella music also teaches us to follow a leader. There's a lot of conducting that happens in a Church of Christ worship service. We have to know when to get louder and when to get softer, when to pause for a breath or when to hold a note. We learn to appreciate one another for the part that each person sings. And we know that it takes every part for the song to be whole, for the fullness of its beauty to be expressed. This love of singing has carried over into my family. My mom loves to sing. In fact, her family loves to sing. And often my mom will talk to me on the phone just about songs that she sang in the church service and how they sounded. Or she'll be excited because so-and-so's uncle was visiting and they're a really good bass. My mom suffered a mild stroke at the end of June, and she spent the month of July in a skilled nursing facility. And I was there with her in the hospital for the few days following her stroke, and then I stayed uh, to help her kind of get adjusted to the nursing facility. It's kind of a scary thing, right, to be in a place for a month apart from her husband. And so I was looking for things that maybe would kind of make it easier for her to be there. And I discovered that these places have all kinds of activities for the patients and the residents. And so I got this activity calendar and I was showing her, you know, different things she could go to during the day, different programs that they had. And wouldn't you know, in this small central Texas town, the local Church of Christ sends a group of singers to this facility every Monday night to lead the residents and the patients in like two hours of just hymn singing. And I thought, my mom's gonna love this. So I pointed it out to her and I said, mom, you know, look, what, look what you're gonna get to do on Monday night. And she said, well, that's almost worth having a stroke for. <laughs> I mean, we love to sing. Often when gathering with my mom's side of the family for Christmas or Thanksgiving or other, other activities, the evening will end with us sitting around with old hymnals open, singing our favorites. We did this last year when we celebrated my mom's 75th birthday, and I've come to really appreciate these times with my family. I like the singing, I like the nostalgia of old hymns, but I really like it for the stories 
See, my mom also has dementia. And it's in the early stages. Uh, she still knows who we are. She can still carry on a conversation. It's just that you're going to have a really great conversation. And then about six minutes later, you're going to have it again. And then about six minutes after that, you're going to have it again. In fact, my, our daughters have a thing with us. They're like, Mom, I'm good for six conversations and I'm out. I'm like, that's okay. That's all right. But when we sit around and sing, my mom remembers everything. It's when we sit around singing songs from church services past that she and her brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, start telling all their stories. It goes something like this. Someone will say, oh, let's sing 248 from the old blue book. And so we'll all turn to 248 in the old blue book. And when we get there, one of my aunts will say, oh, I'd forgotten about this song. And someone else will say, I love this song. And one of my aunts who has an incredible memory will say, we sang this the night Peggy Thornton was baptized. <laughs> someone else will say, I remember John Kirby led this song every Sunday night and when we hit the chorus, he'd just have tears running down his cheeks. Then my uncle, my mom's only brother, will pop in and say, well, I remember that because that was the night Steve and I were hiding in the baptistry, flicking water on people when they came up to serve. And if she hadn't been baptized, we wouldn't have gotten caught. <laughs> and we'll laugh. My mom will scold him. And then we'll realize we haven't actually started the song. So then we'll sing it. I doubt that any one spiritual practice has shaped me as much as singing. For my family and for many raised in our tradition, lyrics were our liturgy. I knew lines about God and faith and mercy and the cross and salvation before I could even read them. And knowing them from such an early age and reciting them in song week after week really shaped my understanding of a life with Jesus. And as it turns out, the writer of a lot of this liturgy was a woman named Fanny J. Crosby. I discovered Fanny Crosby one Sunday when at the age of five, a very unfortunate thing happened. There was no children's Bible hour. And so I was forced to sit through a sermon. And my friend Elizabeth and I would sit and flip through the songbook, judge, critiquing songs to entertain ourselves during the sermon. And while we were rating one particular song, we noticed at the bottom of the page that there was this word, these words, Fanny J. Crosby. And oh, how we lost it, giggling and snickering because we found the word Fanny in the songbook. <laughs> My mother, who has zero tolerance for any nonsense during church and absolutely has never seen any humor in any kind of slang term for anything, pinched me and very matter-of-factly explained to me that Fanny was simply a nickname for Francis, that Fanny Crosby had written that song, in fact, she had written many songs, and that she had been blind. And that was the moment I became a fan of Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was born in the year 1820. She did lose all of her sight, her vision as an infant, 
She lost her dad in early, early childhood and was raised by her grandmother while her mother went out to work. As a teen, Fanny was given the opportunity to go to the New York Institute for the Blind, which set her on a path of discovering a passion for poetry and for writing. There, she was introduced to politicians and to authors. Over the course of her life, Fanny Crosby was invited to the White House and to the floor of Congress multiple times to speak and to read her poetry. She was friends with every presidential administration of her adulthood. She participated in relief work through the Methodist Church, dedicating much of her life to living and working in impoverished areas. In fact, when she died, she left her estate to fund a, a, house, a housing development for the unhoused men. Fanny Crosby may be the most accomplished poet and lyricist in Christian history. She's credited with having written over 8,000 Christian hymns. Some of them may be songs that you have heard. Songs like, to God be the glory, great things he hath done, and safe in the arms of Jesus. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Tis the blessed hour of prayer and blessed assurance. In multiple interviews through her lifetime, Fanny was asked if she blamed God for her blindness. She said that her blindness was a gift because without it, she wouldn't have received such a fine education. And education is what opened the doors of opportunity for her to serve God. She believed that God had been glorified through her lack of sight. Others would often ask Fanny if she ever prayed that her sight would be restored. And she would always respond, of course not. For the first thing I see will be the face of my Savior. Fanny Crosby's attitude toward her blindness and toward God reminded me of a story from the life of Jesus. In the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, we see Jesus walking with his disciples after narrowly escaping an angry mob. It's the Sabbath day, and Jesus and the disciples come upon a man who has been blind since birth. The text says this of their exchange. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's an interesting way to treat people, isn't it? To talk about them rather than to them. To debate their situation from our perspective rather than asking them about their lived experience. Seems to me it's how we often treat people whose bodies don't work the way ours do. Perhaps it was more comfortable for the disciples to talk about why the man was blind than to have to enter his world and then have to have some kind of relationship and maybe provide support or help to him. Or maybe the disciples are just tired. 
they realize they just escaped a crowd that's ready to hurl stones at Jesus, and they would just like to fly below the radar. Please, Jesus, just this once. No big fanfare, no big speeches, no healing. It's the Sabbath. Let's just do a quick, question, a quick lesson on God punishing his people, and then we'll be on our way. So they ask, whose sin caused this man to be blind? They set Jesus up really well here because they even make it multiple choice. In the text, it says, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? All Jesus has to do is pick one. But Jesus can't do that because the choices are not good. So Jesus says, neither. The disciples expect a punitive explanation for the man's blindness, and Jesus proposes that there may not be one. The man's lack of sight may not have been caused by God at all. That's a huge relief to me. Is it to you? It's a relief to me that the parts of life that don't always go as planned, the job that's not offered, the unwanted diagnosis, the loss of a skill, the dream school that didn't have a spot for you, a pregnancy that doesn't go as expected or doesn't go full term, those are not caused by me or by my parents or by my children or by my partner or by something that I did or didn't do in the ninth grade. What a relief that these are not outcomes orchestrated by God to demonstrate his disappointment or his anger that I and you and that we have sinned. See, this is what the disciples didn't quite get. It's what fundamentalists today don't quite get. It's what people who are into American civil religion and atheists and legalists and sadly, believers who have stayed mired in shame don't get. That God's response to sin is not punishment. God's response to sin is Jesus. God's answer to sin is not shame or guilt or penance or contempt of the other or purity culture. God responds to our sin with perfect love in the form of Jesus. Jesus explains in the chapter that the man's blindness will be used for God's glory or for God's work to be done through him. And this turns out to be the case. If you read the rest of John 9, you will see that Jesus does heal the man and the man can see clearly. With his new ability to see comes a second type of vision, one that allows him to see Jesus clearly as being of God. See, it's at this point of the man's weakness, at the reality that led to him being alone in need of help on the side of a road, this is where God was present. This is where God chose to do divine work in him. It's comforting that in those places in our lives, the places where we hurt and are disappointed, 
the places where we feel anxious or fearful or uncertain, where we experience suffering, these are the places where God chooses to be and where God chooses to work. It's in the spaces where we feel the least confident and the most vulnerable that God chooses to be with us, to tend to us, and to display work through us. This seems to be Fanny Crosby's understanding. She believed that God was present in every circumstance for the purpose of redeeming it. I don't get excited about pain. I really don't like loss. Disappointment is for sure my least favorite human experience. But I'm filled with gratitude for a God who sees sin and imperfect people and responds with love. I am filled with gratitude for a God who sees us in pain and disappointment and responds with pathways for redemption. And in those moments where we probably find ourselves the most often, when the pain is present and the redemption is not yet, because of Jesus, we know that God and love and hope and comfort are with us always. A few months ago, our family was at a worship service and we sang one of Fanny Crosby's most well-known hymns, Blessed Assurance. This is not a song that our girls have grown up singing, but I noticed that all four of us sang and really sang out, and so I had just noted it as a really sweet moment. We got in the car to come home, and our youngest daughter, Kate, said, we sounded good during Blessed Assurance. Have we even sung that before? And our oldest responded, yeah, that was good. I don't even know how I know that song. And Sean and I exchanged a knowing parental grin because we know how they know it. Blessed Assurance is a song that my grandmother grew up singing. And she sang it to my mother. And my mother sang it to me. And I sang it to our girls every night when they were little. As it turns out, the voices of women have been with us all along. Ecclesia, I pray that we continue to be a people who love God wholeheartedly by loving and serving others. I pray we continue to be a people who look for opportunity to tell the story of Jesus, of why we know love and hope. And I pray that we are a people who celebrate voices of truth regardless of their gender. May the love of God and the peace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and guide you today and always. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, 
please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.